The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So as you know, in the month of November, we are looking at Psalms of Thanksgiving. So we are looking at key Psalms that can help us give thanks to God at all times. And when I thought about what psalm to give the week of Thanksgiving, the psalm, the Sunday of the week of Thanksgiving, I couldn't help but come to Psalm 103 because it is one of the greatest psalms in the Psalter. Many theologians, Christians, commentators equate Psalm 103 next to maybe only Psalm 23 as the greatest psalm in all of the book of Psalms. Charles Spurgeon a couple hundred years ago compared Psalm 103 to how one mountain stands out among all the Alps, or one painting is best in all the art museum. In fact, he wrote this, Psalm 103 is man's reply to the benedictions of God. It is his song on the mount answering our Lord's sermon on the mount. He continued, there's too much in the psalm for a thousand pens to write. It's one of those all comprehending scriptures, which is a Bible in itself, and it might alone suffice for the entire hymn book of the church. Psalm 103 is genuinely that great. To help us appreciate how wonderful this 103rd Psalm is, we have to stop for a second and think about how language works. Have you noticed that sometimes we use language in a very loose, informal way, and other times we use language in a more careful and composed way? Have you ever sent a text message? (laughs) I sent text messages this past week, and when I reviewed them, I noticed that I had misspelled words in my text message, and I didn't even care. And if you know me, that's very out of character for me to not care. But in a text message, no one is trying to write something that's going to be published. It's a text. We don't care what we write. But I bet if you receive a legal document in the mail, you carefully examine that language because it's more carefully composed. If we had a continuum today of the most loosely structured language and then way over here, the most tightly structured language, the most tightly and carefully composed language is poetry. Now, Psalm 103 is a poem. It is a song. And there are some elements in it that we need to understand so we can appreciate its poetry. First, Psalm 103 is what is known in poetry as a chiasm, or sometimes pronounced a chiasm. And that means that its beginning verses mirror its final verses. Picture a flight of stairs that has a mirror underneath it, and the stairs are reflected in inverse underneath it. That's how Psalm 103 works. I have to tell you that now because I'm going to preach it that way. So when you notice me referring to verse 1 and verse 22, I didn't skip the rest of the psalm. (laughs) I'm preaching it as it's written, as a chiasm. We're going to notice it has a top and bottom, and then it's going to move in another stair, and then it's going to focus like the tip of an arrow towards the center. That's how it's written. A second thing about Psalm 103 that's very interesting poetically, it is an alliterated alphabetic acrostic meaning that each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew only has 22 letters, and that's why there's only 22 verses. So we miss out on that in English. We don't get to read A to Z. But picture each verse beginning with that. That's how carefully structured it is. There's a third poetic thing that's very interesting about Psalm 103. 
It has a theater structure. Parts of it are what we would call in theater soliloquy, which is when a person on the stage turns to himself, as it were, and is no longer facing any of the other characters or the audience. Parts of the psalm are what we would call monologue. He is speaking still to himself, but now he faces the audience. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, pastor nerd, (laughs) thank you for all of that meaningless trivia. I don't understand why it has any bearing on Psalm 103 or my life. Here's why it matters. It matters for two reasons. One, if we don't understand the poetry, we will not preach it right or understand it right. But second, this is a psalm about how to talk to yourself. This is a psalm about how to talk to yourself. That's why I bring out that it's a soliloquy. You are going to learn from today's text, Lord willing, how to talk to yourself. So the title of today's sermon, Let All That Is Within Us Thank the Lord. And from Psalm 103, you know we're doing a chiasm, right? So I'm going to do the first few verses, then the last. And we're going to move in the steps towards the focal point. And we first invite a soliloquy on the stage. So verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, remember, it's a poem, and so all the words are very carefully composed. How many times does it say the word bless? Did you catch it? Three. Now, if you know the Bible, if you know Hebrew thinking, Three is a big deal because it's the same way we would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, meaning he is the most holy. So when the writer says, bless, 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 he means let God receive all thanks from me. Notice he says, all that is within me, so may not any part of me hold anything back. Do you talk to yourself? I was, I was in the office once and there was a lady from FedEx and she came in and she said, hey, and I said, hey, how you doing? How are things going for you? And she kept on walking and talking and then I noticed she had a Bluetooth mouthpiece in her, in her ear. I was talking to myself. But do you talk to yourself intentionally? Yes, of course you do. Of course you do. Paul Tripp is worth quoting here. He said, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. And he's right. The question is not, do you talk to yourself? The question is, how do you talk to yourself? Notice what we see in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, self, O my soul. Bless the Lord, self, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And, and this is the key, forget not all his benefits. Here's how he talks to himself. Now, in Hebrew parallelism, when you have an and, it's a big deal. All right, so verse 2, forget not all his benefits. How do I forget not all his benefits? I bless the Lord. How do I bless the Lord? I forget not all his benefits. You see why the and is so important. Everything that follows in Psalm 103 is now going to be the enumeration of God's benefits, which is why the most important two words in Psalm 103 are these two, forget not. It's a double negative, right? So it means remember. Now probably at this point you're thinking, okay, that doesn't strike me. And do you know why it doesn't strike you? Because we use the word remember in American English very unlike Hebrew biblical thought uses the word remember. 
When we use the word remember, we mean mental recall, like you have an eighth grade geography exam. Where's Des Moines again? I hope I remember. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word remember. The Bible uses the word remember very differently. Let me give you two quick examples to prove it. In 2 Peter 1, there's a list of all of these virtues that should be growing in your life if you're a Christian. But then it says this in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. Or think of Hebrews 8 verse 12, when God says this, I will remember your sins no more. What does that mean? Does that mean that God looks down at me and says, now I know Josh did something really bad in the late 80s, but for the life of me, I can't remember it. Of course not. It means he chooses not to view me in light of who I am and what I've done. He chooses to view me in light of something else that he's chosen to be controlled by in his memory. Therefore, to remember does not mean to simply mentally recall. It means to be controlled by and to live in light of a truth. Tim Keller is worth quoting here. He writes this, in the Bible, remembering is controlling consciousness. It is to have something so central to your consciousness that it affects you completely. And the acid test is your behavior. To remember means to have something so central to your consciousness that it controls how you act. Have you ever said, man, I'll never do that again. And before long, you do it again. (laughs) If you ever want to be embarrassed, pull out a catalog of all the things you swore you would never do again that you have repeated many times since you swore you would never do them again. How did that happen? Did you mentally fail to recall that you said you weren't going to do that? Of course not. There was something more vividly controlling that was true to you. This is what I really need. This is what I can't live without. If I don't have this, I don't have anything. That's what remember means. Remember means to be controlled vividly to the point of it affecting your behavior. Let me prove it from another angle. We easily remember and live controlled by things that we wish we could forget. Think of something you looked at that you wish you wouldn't have ever looked at and you want to forget it, but you can't. Think of something wrong you have done that you wish you didn't remember, but you still do. Think of something wrong that someone has done to you that you've tried to move past from, but you can't seem to do so. Many times in my life, someone has said something like this to me. Josh, when I was six or when I was in third grade, my teacher, my parent, my coach told me, you'll never amount to anything. You'll never succeed in life. Now, probably hundreds of times they were told, you're a great kid, you're a great student, but they remembered that moment. And for the rest of their life, they're probably defined by that moment. They either achieve earthly success to prove that person wrong, or they fall into despair to try to escape what they couldn't prove wrong. You see, to remember is to be vividly controlled by something that you deem to be all-encompassingly true. That's what the text means when it says, forget not all his benefits. One of the saddest things about sin's curse is we are great at remembering what's harmful to us, and we are terrible at remembering what's good for us. 
Charles Spurgeon wrote a couple hundred years ago, memory is a very treacherous thing. By a strange perversity engendered by the fall, our memory treasures the refuse of the past and permits priceless treasures to lie neglected. Our memory is tenacious of grievances and yet holds benefits all too loosely. So here in Psalm 103, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, be vividly controlled by all his benefits. Now he begins to enumerate them. Who forgives all your iniquity, who who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verses verses three, four, and five are a triplet when you're singing. You know what a triplet is when these three quarter notes get tied together. That's what verses three, four, and five are meant to be like. The first one, verse three, tells us that God pardons our sin and will one day rescue us from all of sin's physical diseases. I bet when you read verse 3, you probably thought, he forgives all your iniquity. But then when you read who heals all your diseases, you thought, I'm not sure about that one. I mean, he forgives all our diseases, or he forgives all our iniquity. I'm not sure he heals all our diseases. Do you know why we, we struggle with that one? It's because the Bible has many promises that are what theologians call already not yet's. But we forget that they're secured and they will be fulfilled. So rejoice, God actually does heal all our diseases. He will wipe away all of the stain of sin. This promise will come true in the same way that all of them do. So verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit. God often spares our life from the pit, but in any case, he will ultimately raise us from death. The word pit is Sheol. Your translation may translate it that way. Sometimes in the Bible, it means the afterlife. Sometimes in the Bible, it's a metaphor for a near-death experience. Here, it means both. God, at times, rescues us from near death. God will ultimately rescue us from death. Verse 4 continues, Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Steadfast love is our best English attempt at trying to translate the Hebrew word keset. The King James very unfortunately translates it mercy, which is, which is not at all what, what it means. It means loyal, covenanted love to those who belong to God through faith. It's a love that can never be forsaken. It's a love that can never be lost. But also, God is merciful. He has loyal love and compassion on those who are his. Now verse five, God sustains our life and restores vitality so that we soar, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now remember it's a chiasm and we're only on the first stair. So the mirror underneath begins down in verse 20. Would you look down in verse 20? Bless the Lord, O you his angels. Notice it's a monologue now. He's facing the audience in the stage. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. How many times did he say bless? Again, three. Which is why we should really notice that he's now going to say it a fourth time. Look at the end of verse 22. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why the fourth added to the third? To remind us that we must continue talking to ourselves because we are very prone to forget. How prone are we to forget? 
Remember in Deuteronomy, when the law is being given a second time, do you remember what God tells the next generation? This is the generation after the ones who have wandered 40 years in the wilderness and died. And God tells them, when you go to the promised land, don't forget me. How could they forget? They watched their parents die. They're going to go in the promised land and forget God? Yes, because that's how prone we are to forget. Think about in the Old Testament, nearly, every, nearly any time God does an amazing miracle to rescue his people, they build a monument of stones so that they don't forget. In fact, to prove it to us now, we're going to move to the next step of stairs. And there are two verses that I bet you might say, well, sure, those are true theoretically, but you're probably not vividly controlled by them. Look now in verse 6. We're in the second flight of stairs. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Do you believe that's true? You may not, because you may not remember who God is in actual practice. Verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Do you believe that's true, or do you think the world is in chaos, careening out of control? So you actually are vividly controlled by one truth or a false narrative. Here's the truth that we should be vividly controlled by. And yet, it feels so real around us when evil is happening and we think, no, God is not just, he's not righteous. Surely things are spinning out of control. But brothers and sisters, should we not remember? Galatians 6 verse 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Or Romans 12, 19, Behold, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Therefore, in fact, in reality, God is righteous and just and is ruling his world, and he will right all wrongs. But what are you vividly controlled by? The news that seems so disheartening or the bedrock truth that you must remember? Now the steps move in again. So we had the first one, now the second one, and now we move in to the center and focus of the psalm. So number three, thank God for his great forgiving grace. Verse seven, God, the Lord, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now there's a conflict and a tension here, if you're familiar with what David is quoting. In Psalm 103, David is quoting how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. This is the day that Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai and God descended in the cloud and revealed himself and then gave Moses the Ten Commandments. In that text, God actually said this in Exodus 34. The Lord, Exodus 34 verse 6, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Sounds familiar. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. Sounds like 103. But now, here's what he actually said in Exodus 34. God will by no means clear the guilty. God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. So wait, which one is true? Psalm 103 says God is slow to anger, 
does not deal with us according to our sins, verse 10. But in Exodus 34, God actually said, I will by no means clear the guilty. How can that be? Let's continue in Psalm 103. Look in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 12, one of the most beautiful verses in scripture. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Wait, so God is able to remove sin as if we have never sinned and we will never be held into account for our sin. How can that be when he told Moses he will not clear the guilty? Do you know the answer? David wrote knowing that God would put his sin on his Messiah, his son. This is why Colossians 2 says this, you were dead in your sins, and yet God made you alive, having forgiven all our trespasses, same words as Psalm 103, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and nailing it to the cross. You see, the sin that requires justice so that God can clear the guilty is paid for by the innocent, paid for by God's Son. On this basis alone, David can say that Christ can, because of Christ, God can remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. Now, this is true for those who fear the Lord, which is an Old Testament way of saying those who turn from their sin and trust in God's promise. Now, the verses that follow are only true for those who have come to know Christ and those who've turned from their sin. And that's because in John 1, we read this, that Jesus came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, God gave them the right or authority to become the sons of God. Did you know not everybody is God's child? You're not born into God's family. You're born again into God's family. So through faith in Christ, the following verses are true. Now look in verse 13. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. When our oldest was born, when Evangeline was born, I remember sitting in the hospital sitting in the couch and holding her on my arm, scared to death <laughs> of how I'm going to learn how to be a father. She weighed six pounds and four ounces. Uh, my backpack weighed more than that. So I was thinking, how is this little human who's depending on me for life, how is this all going to work out? And that day, I was just reading through my devotions, and in God's good providence, I read Psalm 103. And when you're holding your firstborn and you come along to these verses that say, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. If you're a Christian, know this morning that no one has greater compassion on your weakness than your heavenly father. No one is better at intimately knowing your struggles and your weakness and yet committing to love you. Were that not true, notice verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place knows it no more. The NIV actually translates, translates it this way. Its place is remembered no more. 
In our house in, in Michigan, we had a cemetery in a nearby walk from our home. And when you're walking through a cemetery, especially if it's a very large one, and you look out and you see tombstone after tombstone after tombstone of people who nobody remembers, it strikes you that, you know, my great-grandchildren won't even probably know my first name. And if that's your only hope, whatever this life is, and then like a light switch, it's off and click, it's over and forgotten, what a despairing existence but because of the Lord, that's not true for those who know him. Look at verse 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. See, there's one person who will always know your name and who will never forget you. This is for those who fear him. And his righteousness is given to their children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So this psalm of poetic grander has now focused in on the tip of the arrow. God is a God who forgives, and God is a good father. So let me give you three specific applications this morning. Here's the first one. How have you been talking to yourself lately? What voices are you allowing to affect your voice? Have you ever noticed that you start talking like people you spend a lot of time with? I was at the table the other day and someone asked my wife a question and she answered with vocabulary she has heard from me. <laughs> and no doubt I do the same thing. I use phrases I've picked up from her. Not just concepts, but phrases as well. You will talk to yourself in a voice. So what voice is the one that's coming through you? All right, here's a, another reality about that. When you're talking to yourself, do you tip the scale on listening to yourself or on talking to yourself? Now, both matter. You do need to listen to yourself. Psalm 42, verse 5 says this, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why do you turmoil within me? See, so he, he knows how he's feeling. Now, if I can be frank, our 21st century American culture is really good at the listening to myself part. We got that one down. We're not so good at the preaching and talking to ourselves part. You see, Psalm 42.5 doesn't end with, why are you downcast? It continues by saying, hope thou in God. Remember your salvation. In fact, the end of verse 5 says this, my soul is downcast, therefore I will remember you, Lord. Remember meaning I will be controlled vividly by who God is. So how are you talking to yourself? A half century ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor and also a pastor in London, wrote a book called Spiritual Depress Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Let me quote a little bit of what he wrote. Dr. Jones said, have you realized that the most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Our danger is we submit ourselves to our feelings and allow them to dictate us, to govern us, to master us, to control us. But that other man within us has to be handled. Don't just listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Condemn him. Upbraid him. Exhort him. Encourage him. Remind him of what you know. Instead of placidly listening to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. Dr. Jones concludes, the main art in the matter of spiritual living 
is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand, address yourself, preach to yourself, and question yourself. So the first application is how are you talking to yourself? The second application is what do you truly remember? Not in the English sense of what can you recall if we did an exam, what can you quote? No, what what are you vividly controlled by? Last week we were starting um, a fire in our house intentionally, we have a fireplace. (laughs) And I was working on the fireplace to start a fire and then I realized I hadn't opened the the trap door to let the smoke out. And so our, our room started to fill with smoke, the first floor was filling with smoke and the alarm was going off. And in order to calm everything down, I took the battery out of, out of the smoke alarm. And then, which is not a smart move. <laughs> As we were going to bed, we had that husband and wife talk that I know if you're married, you've had many times. My wife said, oh, honey, don't forget to put the battery. Yeah, 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 I got it. I got it. Yeah. Don't forget to put the battery back. Steph, I got it. I'll remember. I'll remember. Don't forget to put the battery back. Yes, of course. I remember. How could I forget that? And of course, I forgot. <laughs> so I went to bed, and imagine if what woke me up, and this is not what happened, but imagine if what woke me up was the smell of smoke and the crackling of flames on my wall. Suddenly, with my wife and four children all above the fireplace on the next floor, I would remember. In the Hebrew sense of the term, I would get up and do something about it. You see? So what are you most vividly controlled by? Here's what I find in actual life. Many people can quote the Bible, they can read the Bible, they can go to church, but they don't remember it in the Hebrew sense. They're not controlled by it. As a pastor, I remember once sitting in my office with a parent and her middle school daughter, and her her daughter was so discouraged. She'd grown up in church, she knew so much of the Bible so well, but at middle school, she was at a new school and at the cafeteria, people didn't sit with her, and none of the boys were paying attention to her, and she felt so discouraged. So as, as, as we're sitting with her, I started to tell her how God loves her and Christ has died on the cross for her. And she looked at me and she said, but what good is that if none of the boys notice me at school? So you see, what she knew of the Bible that she could mentally recall had no vivid meaning to her. Think of how many times you're in a situation where you feel overwhelmed by criticism or overwhelmed by fear. You must learn to say to yourself, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives my iniquity, who will heal all my diseases, who will crown me with steadfast love and mercy. If that is true then why would I ever be afraid or despairing or hopeless in any situation? And yet I must learn to continuously talk to myself because I'm prone to forget. So listen this morning. The most important two things you will ever say to yourself are these two. God loves me and through Christ he forgives all my sin as far as the east is from the west. And number two, God loves me better than any father ever could or ever would, and he remembers me. He knows my name. With compassion, he remembers that I'm from dust. If those two things are what you preach to yourself, nothing else can overwhelm you. Nothing else can discourage you. But the third point of application, if you are flippant with sin in your life, then it means one of two things. Either one, You do not fear the Lord yet. And Psalm 103 is talking about a blessing for those who have turned to God through Christ. 
So you won't receive these blessings until you turn from your sin and run to the cross and fear the Lord. But it might be that you are a Christian, though you've forgotten who you are because you've forgotten whose you are. I was a baby, so I don't remember this experience, but my parents have told me that as a baby, I was choking on a hot dog that my mom had cut up, but apparently not cut up small enough for me. And my dad, in fatherly love and rage, grabbed all the hot dogs out of the freezer and threw them in the yard. No more hot dogs. (laughs) Now imagine if I had actually died by choking to death on a hot dog. Do you think dad would ever get hot dogs again? They would never be in the home. They would only remind him of what killed his son. How could we cling closely to sin that killed our Savior? Why would we ever want to play with the thing that is the cause of the blood flowing down the crucified body of our Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps it's because we don't remember who we are. Titus 2 tells us this, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live controlled and upright lives because, verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from wickedness and purify to himself a people that are eager to do what is good. If we remember whose we are and what he did to make us his, suddenly sin's grip is a lot less powerful. Remembering is the power going forward. So I pray over the holiday season as you're working on different things and often people take on spiritual disciplines at Advent, can I suggest one to you? Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Can I give you a challenge to consider? Consider memorizing Psalm 103. The good it will do for you is incalculable. Many times when your soul is wrestling within you, you can tell yourself, self, bless the Lord. Self, forget not his benefits. Self, he's removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. Self, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on me. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, the voices in our head can often compel us to forget you. And in this world, there are many different narratives out there for what gives a human meaning or identity or purpose or significance. But in fact, what gives us meaning and purpose and identity and significance is that we are the Lord's through faith in his son. Lord, what an amazing thing it is that when David quotes Moses, he knows enough of your promise to know that you will clear the guilty, not because we deserve it, but because you will place our sin on your own son. And it is only because of the cross that we can say, my sin is removed as far as the east is from the west, and the Lord will now not deal with me on the basis of my iniquity. He will remember my sin no more. So God, as a Christian, it is staggering to think that I contend to think about things I've failed at and be crippled by that when you have chosen to not hold them against me. Lord, it is amazing to think as a believer that there are times where I feel discouraged and people sometimes are sinfully critical and yet I need to remind myself that I have been crowned with the steadfast love 
and mercy of the Lord. There are many times that I face sickness and fear and I feel like life can be overwhelming, but I need to remember that you give me all good things so that my strength can be restored like the youth of the eagles. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to preach to ourselves and to be vividly controlled by the truth of the Bible. Because yes, I know it's one thing to mentally recall a few verses or to open the Bible. It's a totally different thing when that compels us to a different life. Lord, we thank you that here as we pause on Thanksgiving, we come and approach a God who is infinitely forgiven and a compassionate Father. Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray that you would receive our thanks in gladness this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.